Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast where I interview people who on the surface appear to be quite ordinary. Underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Bianca Tropiano is such a one-of-a-kind person that it's challenging to know just how to introduce her. Essentially, she's devoted her life to working for charity, and very unusual charities at that. And... This is a cool hobby of hers. She's really excelled at Title Boxing Company. And in her life, she's moved from Boston to the Midwest to Paris. She is an amazing person. Let's get into it. Hi, Bianca. Hi, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> well, give me a brief overview. Just don't give me any details just yet. Where in Paris do you live and what do you do? I, I currently live in Paris. It's, it's really in this... At the heart of Paris in the sixth arrondissement, um, at an old convent um, that was formerly, was it the um, visitation sisters that used to live here? And I, um, I've lived here for now a year and a half, and I, I came here for a couple different reasons. One was to study for a master's program, um, and the other, which maybe I'll get into later. The other was to to participate in mission with Anuncio, this community, a lay community that I live with here. There's no sisters in the convent currently where I live. And um, the other reason is because I work remotely for a, a Catholic company that's given me the opportunity to still keep my job and and really go after things in life that I feel like the Lord is is calling me to uh, to take a dive into. So that's how very briefly and how I ended up providentially in Paris. Um, truly providentially, uh, it's, uh, that would be maybe a longer story, but yeah, well, uh, step by step, I intended. I, I want to get into the longer story when we get there. Um, I, I guess I'm going to try to be a little bit chronological just because you've, you've done such unusual things with your life. Um, can you give me kind of a brief overview, um, just of all the charities that you've worked at and all of the jobs you've done or, or the highlights, just whatever you prefer. Sure. Um, let's see some quick highlights. I, I, I mean, as far as it could go a lot of different ways, but even when I was in, in high school, I participated in a lot of different missions and ministries and did that also, pardon me, I have no screen in Paris. So there's bugs that are occasionally flying around. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the other joys, no AC and no, um, no screens, but that's, I'm used to that for mission life. But <laughs> um, anyway, so I, uh, a little brief, recap. I've lived, uh, I'm from Boston originally, and I went to school in Washington, D.C., and from there I also participated in a lot of different missions and ministries. I was a student minister, a student athlete, an RA, um, a double major in the university, worked at the Bishop's Conference, um, and also when I was at the university, I did some ministry and missions with the poor um, in inner city projects in D.C. and Southeast D.C., as well as uh, with the homeless um, in Washington, D.C. as well. And for me, um, my family background didn't allow me the opportunity to maybe participate in some of that, um, at least from my experience with my family. And so encountering the poor in any way for me started a little bit in high school, um, but particularly when I lived in, in D.C. Um, and that was for me a real moment to really encounter Christ in a new way. Um, it's through uh, the light that I think shines forth from the poor. So, um, yeah, 
Yeah, and then from there, I, I was offered a job at the Bishop's Conference and declined that. Um, I really felt called to do full-time mission work and to really be with the poor. Um, and then from there, I went to Simple House, um, where we lived in intentional poverty, lived among the poor, uh, lived off donations, only received a stipend of $200 a month, um, and lived uh, lived among them, and sometimes even worse than them. We didn't have AC or internet or TV intentionally, so we were really living uh, in, in many ways intentionally poor in the heart of uh, D.C. and also Kansas City, where I ended up. Um, and so, yeah, I was there for five and a half years. Then I left that ministry and um, worked also uh, at a school just briefly for maybe two months and I knew that I needed to step away from there and went back to working with again with the poor but in a different capacity uh, with the mentally ill poor specifically the severely mentally ill poor um in Kansas City I had been asked to move from our simple house in DC to Kansas City to run the house there which is how I ended up in the Midwest and most people on the east coast don't move to the Midwest. Um, we consider it just a flyover state. Sorry, Tim, but uh, that tends to be the case for for people from either coast, particularly from Boston. Um, some family thought I lived in a cornfield, but I'm happy to share that I love Kansas City and um, did not consider that the city was a cornfield. Um, but uh, that's how I ended up in Kansas City and worked in um, outpatient psych for a while, doing our intake team uh, process with them. And from there, I uh, did a lot of different other things. Um, was still doing work with the poor even after I left missions. I'm a lay member of the community of the Lamb. Um, and so I've done a lot of different things with that community as a uh, part of their, what we call the family of the Lamb. Um, so not a con- I'm not a consecrated religious, but I'm a part of that community as a lay member. And that allowed me still to continue uh, a life of mission in many different ways and um, to live the gospel. It's really a commitment to live the gospel in one's daily life. And so that's one connection to France, which is where I am now. Um, My being here is not uh, just through the community of the Lamb. It's um, for a couple of other reasons as well with studies and whatnot that I I did. uh, I moved forward prior to to really even thinking... um, of uh, my connection with the community of the Lamb. So anyways, that's kind of very briefly where I'm at now. Um, I'm sure there's other things I can share as we continue our conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the the thing that just amazes me, and, I, and maybe we'll get into it just by kind of going back to your secret origin story when you were a kid. The thing that just really amazes me is, is that um, so, some people, they always kind of knew that they wanted to do one thing. Uh, but here you had a double major, you had excellent grades, you're incredibly social, you can talk with almost any kind of person. I, I honestly feel like you could have done anything, You could, and you still could, you're young. It, you could just do absolutely anything, and the fact that you've, you've led this completely unique life, um, did, were there signs of this when you were a kid? What, what kind of a kid were you? That's a very funny question to ask. <laughs> what kind of a kid was I? Um, I was very quiet. Um, I I'm, I really like athletics a lot. Um, but I know that I was very quiet, and I remember that even in high school, I was very studious and really disciplined in my studies. 
um, just knowing that I, I wanted to obviously excel and do well with everything I invested my time in. But there was this old lady at my high school. I went to an all-girls Catholic high school. I was very thankful for that opportunity that my parents offered me through that education. And um, there was this old lady, um, Mrs. Sandel, who was uh, our tea room person that would oversee the tea room is like our cafeteria. Um, and so she would um, be like the lunch monitor lady as well as the after school monitor lady. And she really noticed that I was fairly quiet, but I believe it was her that encouraged me to do the speech and debate team. And that really helped me to take a step out of just being only a quiet soul, but also maybe um, allowed me to really step out and share a little bit more of some other ability to speak with people and to not just compete with forensics and speech, but also to, um, to be a bit more <clears throat> vocal. And um, so, yeah, I think that's part of uh, what helped me to also develop more of who I am and how God made me was her encouragement of this old lady, Mrs. Sandell. Um, she really helped me a lot. I'm very thankful for her. I haven't thought of her actually in a long time, but so, um, yeah, I guess that, maybe that's a quick answer for you. Man, that's, you know what that really says is just one person can have just a monumental impact on another person's life and maybe never even know it. Yeah, for sure. You might want to send her or her family a card or something like that and just say, hey. Good idea. Just, yeah, she was very old, actually, so I, sh I believe she actually passed away. And I, when she did, I, if I remember correctly, I may have actually sent their family something thanking them um, for her life. I think, you know, online you can also send them message when I heard that she passed away so but she's a real sweet lady we should pray for her Mrs. Sandel. yeah that's awesome yeah. that's awesome okay yeah. so high school and then college I, I just have this belief that college changes everybody and and I'm just kind of curious did college change you great question it, college definitely did change me I was uh as I mentioned it was really good at academics and sports and whatnot um, when I went to the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., I also arrived at the university with my twin sister, um, as well as with one of my best friends, who's actually now a Catholic priest. And um, what ended up happening is my twin sister in our sophomore year, maybe halfway into it, ended up leaving. And then Will also left and um, ended up entering the seminary. Um, so for me, I was still involved in a lot of different things at the university, independent of them. But their leaving also allowed me to, I think, invest in things more independently and um, and go after things that I was interested in that I maybe hadn't expressed um, necessarily. Like I was on the rowing team in college. Um, I was a student minister. Those are things I probably would have done uh, regardless. But um, I don't. I think being in college just encouraged me to move forward. Um, and being interested in a variety of things and trying them. Like, for example, what student wants to get up at 4.45 every morning uh, for a crew practice and then go to an 8 a.m. class? Well, most people probably do not, but um, as well as, you know, studying for multiple degrees and whatnot. But I don't consider that I was maybe an overachiever. It was just that I was interested in a lot of different things. And um, even being on the crew team, for example, allowed me to help allowed me the opportunity to be a bit more disciplined with that which I was interested in. So I think 
saying this out loud even reminds me to continue in that discipline in a lot of different ways. Um, but that also for me, even in my current experience here, I, I work at nights and I think some of that formation that I had with some of the decisions I made in college to be involved in different things, to be meeting a variety of people, both the rich and the poor, um, and to be involved in a variety of studies, to learn, to, to grow my, my knowledge, but also um, really expand my heart by the way I, God willing, loved people, um, I think was maybe a, a good way of formation. And had I been anywhere else in the country for university, I think I wouldn't have had the multiple types of experiences that I had at CUA that really allowed me to be formed um, more fully, I think, into who I am now. And really, a lot of um, my encounters with people at the university, for example, I really see them as providential, like how I've met a variety of different people that even just now I, I had a webinar with uh, the Archdiocese of D.C., and a friend of mine from the university now runs one of their offices. We worked together on a project, um, as well as, you know, things like uh, just a variety of things that I'm, I'm really thankful for um, in my time in college that helped form me and taught me to make good connections, um, both in, in the church and out, outside the church. Um, so, yeah, it's like a big growth of moving Forward. You know, yeah. I, I'm very amazed at just how much you did in college because, you know, I've known you for a little while and I think I sort of missed out on the college athlete portion, you know, like the rowing team. That's pretty hardcore getting up at 430. But here you're doing athletics, you are double majoring, and you managed to start working with refugees during this time period. I, how do you how do you have time to do all of this? And what was it like working with refugees? Um, when I was in college, um, the working college, I worked at the USCCB, and that, that office I worked in was the Office of Pastoral Care for Migrants and Refugee Services. So that was a job that I had, but not until I was a, I believe it was my junior and senior year. The work I did in the projects was particularly with African Americans. Um, who weren't necessarily refugees, but were African-Americans living in, in some of the worst neighborhoods in, um, in D.C. Um, and that was particularly focused on certain days of the week. I think we went out for ministry on Thursday nights, if I remember correctly. Um, and like, for example, it was just my, I tried to organize my time well. It was like, okay, Thursdays I have mission. Fridays I have mission with the, the homeless and and, um, you know, I was doing sacristan work on, you know, 12, 12 o'clock mass, um, noon mass as a sacristan. So all these things, I really, honestly, I think what really sustained me in it was having uh, a life rooted in prayer and of giving to other people. And had it been just self-focused, I think it probably would have just exploded. Um, it was more uh, really for me, it, even just reflecting on it now, Tim, which I think, thank you for that, was really to have a, a foundation of of knowing I needed to stay close to the Lord. Um, and then I wasn't distracted by stupid stuff. Like, you know, somebody on the crew team would be like, Hey, do you want to go to this party? And I'm just like, no, you know, I'm not really interested. Like my priorities are elsewhere. Um, and it's not bad to, to meet people and to do necessarily hopefully healthy ways of encountering people. But for me, there's certain things I just said no to, and it allowed me the freedom to say yes to, to other things um, that I, I found to be more life-giving and hopefully we're also more life-giving to other people as well so i hope that's the right answer i don't know well, no there's there's no right answers but 
Gosh, I just, I absolutely love that though, because having taught college myself for about 20 years at UMKC and just, I don't know, being a triple major nerd myself, like you kind of see the party crowd and I don't know, there's, there's just, I could just hit you with a bunch of horrible statistics, like one out of four college freshmen flunk out. Half of the people who start college are never going to graduate in their lifetime. And then on the opposite end, you see people with double majors who are getting up at 4.30, who are making time for volunteer work. And it's just, I, I don't know, I, I definitely think that it's great that you said yes to so many good things and that you figured out how to schedule that and that your faith got stronger. It just seems like every good thing kind of happened. And I'm just, I'm very impressed. So um, let's transition to A Simple House because when I first heard about A Simple House, I just never heard of anything like this. I, it just, it was one of a kind. And then later I found out it was two of a kind, that there were two of them. Um, it just kind of blows my mind. Can you uh, tell us about age 22, you join a simple house? Yeah. So after I graduated from university, I was invited on a, um, a Saturday retreat with Simple House. The guy who founded it, uh, Clark Massey, um, was also doing ministry on Thursday nights in the inner city projects in Southeast. So that's how I met him. And he was in the process of starting a simple house when I first met him. And when I went on that retreat, I was just very thankful for, again, providentially that my university professors said, Hey, you can take the week off and go on this retreat. I said, it's really to discern what my next steps are after university. Um, And I really found in that moment that I was really um, struck both by a couple things with Simple House, the foundation of prayer, um, the desire to live a communal life, um, the desire to be among the poor, and not just to offer them like a bag of groceries, which is something that Simple House did, or diapers, or whatever it might be, but to offer them friendship and to do what we called friendship evangelization. And so encountering the poor, uh, particularly in their homes, it wasn't they come to us, it was we went to them, and we lived among them, uh, in the inner city, in a place that we didn't belong, I'm, I'm very white, well, Italian, white, <laughs> Mediterranean white. Um, but um, I obviously didn't belong in an inner city, primarily black neighborhood. And it was really um, interesting to me to see how God really revealed himself through uh, this ministry. And I, I wanted to invest in that just to see what God had, uh, particularly through this this lens of friendship evangelization, to offer nothing more than, than prayer and friendship. Um and and, uh, and to rely specifically to rely completely on God's providence um, for how we live, even to say I'm, I'm not going to get a full time job. I'm going to take this other route um, and 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 rely on the Lord both for the success of the ministry and mission, and also for living just in daily life. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of the nuts and bolts of it, very simply. Yeah, well, let's let's get into some some stories and just things like that and just maybe give us, uh, I guess, for starters, the lay of the land. What was the actual neighborhood like? Um, in Southeast D.C., the original house I lived in was on T Street in North, uh, Northeast, um, which was a gift from a Catholic charity of... Um, Catholic, uh, or what's her name? Dorothy Day's Catholic Worker House. Oh, yeah. When that house no longer existed, it was gifted to Simple House. And we actually had this lady, Lucy, living with us, who was a poor woman who originally lived in that house. And she was a, she was a gem. Um, she was uh, this 
old hunched-over African-American lady that had uh, schizophrenia, and she just was, I just love, love her very much. She passed away now probably four, year, four or five years ago, but um, so I lived in that house, in the woman's house, as we called it. It was a nicer neighborhood that was gentrified, but our ministry uh, was in Southeast DC, where the original Simple House was. It was a very poor neighborhood. It was over the bridge. So in DC, it's really segregated by sections of the city. And if you drive over the bridge, most people do not want to live or even go to Southeast DC, let alone go into the neighborhoods that we were wanting to visit the poor in. And our hope was to go to the neighborhoods that were the most in need and were also the neighborhoods that the postman wouldn't go to and the police wouldn't go to. And we want to knock on the doors of people um, in what we do for our general outreaches, like at Christmas and Easter with Easter bags just to say hello but also to really observe, okay, who is the most in need here? Um, and we could see it by conversation, but also even by materially, like somebody has literally nothing in their house, well, we'll come back with groceries. You know, or offered a, a friendship, of, nice to meet you, and how can we help you, or just to meet them. Um, and really encounter the poor. And um, we go into these neighborhoods that no one else wanted to go into, particularly with the focus of finding the poorest of the poor. Like the ones that were the most materially poor, but also the most spiritually poor and the spiritually poverty is different. There's a, there's a different need there. Um, and there also was a recognition that we wanted to find those that, um, that social services weren't finding that like, uh, that they couldn't reach out to a, a service that would help them. It was instead that we would through friendship help them with what maybe some of their social service needs were, but primarily, um, with this gift of, of friendship and, and God willing, uh, you know, allowing the Lord to work through that in whatever way he had. Um, so that's kind of the lay of the land in D.C. And similarly, it was very similar in Kansas City. Um, the demographic was still, again, mainly African-American, um, as well as maybe a bit more of a, a white population in Kansas City. But still, again, the inner city with targeted neighborhoods that were particularly some of the worst in Kansas City, like Independence Avenue, um, the, was it Choteau Apartments? Uh, we would go to over there off of Independence Ave, where it was initially a targeted neighborhood that we would reach out to, as well as some others, uh, neighborhoods scattered throughout the city um, as well, because the layout's a bit different than in D.C., but similar uh, work and mission and, and a little bit more work with the homeless in, in Kansas City as well, but um, still the same, same, same ministry. It just kind of blows my mind. I didn't really realize that the police and the post office oftentimes could not reach people in those neighborhoods. Um, how are these people connected to American society or were they just living off kind of like on their own little island? And you see, it could be a variety of things. Like I know that there are certain neighborhoods in Washington, D.C. that the police don't want to go into because it's run by gangs. They know if they enter, they're going to get into trouble. Um, that It's just asking for a problem. Um, and it's the same thing with the police, um, excuse me, with the postman, that we just knew of certain neighborhoods where that was that was well known. Like on um, in D.C. and Berry Farms, for example, was a really rough neighborhood that uh, it was just like known that you don't go to Berry Farms. Well, okay, well, we knew uh, this old lady in Berry Farms and this other family in Berry Farms, and I would go to Berry Farms, no problem. <laughs> I'd wear my big crucifix so I knew I wasn't the police and I wasn't there to buy drugs. Um, but um, 
you know, the, they knew us in the neighborhood as being uh, from the church and pastors. And we wouldn't do, we'd have to have street smarts, obviously. You have to learn to be aware of certain things, particularly when you're in a neighborhood that's you're invited, in a sense, into. Um, but you're also there on mission. So we took, obviously, precautions to be safe, um, but also to, to utilize what we called our spidey sense to make sure we weren't getting ourselves into any bad situations or putting anyone else that was with us into a bad situation. But it was intentional to, to meet the poor that, that others wouldn't wouldn't go to find. Like, you know, the Lord goes to seek after the one lost sheep uh, and the poorest one. And like, who was the poorest one? We, we would really pray and look for them. Uh, and, and God, God willing, really encounter them. So, yeah, that's kind of, kind of it. Well, if, if you don't mind my asking, I'm just I'm just kind of stunned by the whole model because I'm, I'm just still thinking about the police not going there, the post office not going there. And I'm just thinking there may not be very many jobs for people and people could be very, very, very poor. Uh, and then here you are kind of a stranger in a strange land coming in. Yeah. Um, how long did it take before the residents warmed up to you? Um, I, uh, I don't honestly don't remember all the specifics, but I know with our general outreaches like there's a lot of turnover in project neighborhoods there's some people that stay for a long time um but then there's others that will just be pretty transient so when we do these christmas or easter outreaches we would meet new people and the poor are, are fairly receptive um i think we we would say that there's this need for authenticity that if you're not being genuinely yourself the poor have a really quick quick radar for that and they're not always, I don't want to say, not every person we encountered was being dishonest, but, excuse me for the messages, they're, um, they're not all being dishonest, but they have a real radar for when there's an, uh, someone who's not being authentic. So we learn, like, okay, if you're going somewhere, be authentic. <laughs> Who are you? I'm Bianca, da 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 da, da. But, um, you know, and this is Joe, or this is Drew, or whomever, but, um, they were receptive when we were ourselves and they were receptive when we brought, uh, brought the gospel and the love of God. And, um, because it was something that they, they needed, whether we said that specifically or not, and they knew who we were and what our, our reason was for being there. Um, but we came with friendship, you know, nothing more than friendship and, and also set limits. Like we're not going to give someone money. Like we're not the money person. We're, we're not the grocery delivery person. We're your friends and we help them as a friend. And that, that was uh, well received because I think it's something that the people don't expect and that they desire in their heart. We all desire that a uh, friendship with another, um, and hopefully, you know, a friendship really with the Lord. So, um, when you offer that, I think it's, it's generally well received. And if it's not, you just, you leave it alone. It's okay. Yeah. I think people definitely appreciate honesty and authenticity and, uh, the fact that that's what you were offering and that there were there weren't any strings attached either positive or negative like like you said you weren't there to be handing out money or food I mean occasionally you might help people with material needs but primarily you were just reaching out to people as a friend I think for a lot of charities that is just completely unusual because when I think of a typical charity I, I don't know I think maybe of a food bank or something like that where it's on a certain respect it's very transactional and, and I think that's what makes Simple House unique. I think you said a lot of other things that make it unique. Is there anything about a Simple House that we didn't say that you would like to add? Um, 
there's there's quite a few things I could probably say about the gift that Simple House was in my life. And I think being there, um, I would say all, I, I don't want to speak for all missionaries, but I think the intention of Simple House is to help you recognize your own poverty and to help you to start to recognize that. And it's when we recognize our own poverty and woundedness then we can see our need and reliance for God and um, even all the projects that we do, all of our encounters with the poor, um, all of the missions and ministry that we're a part of, the intention was for us to recognize the fact that we would fail. Like, humanly speaking, we, we would fail. And, and uh, for me, when I, I strive to be successful, not intentionally of my own will, but I think it's a God-given gift to be able to, like we were talking about earlier, to do a lot of things and hopefully try to do them well. Um, Simple House allows the opportunity for, for one to, to step beyond that, to recognize a need and reliance on God, and that the ability to do anything um, is only possible because it's God-given grace to do anything, uh, to encounter someone, but also to encounter uh, to God in our own poverty, that, that he, he also um, meets us where we're at and loves us where we're at when we're not perfect and when we can't do something well or we can't love someone as we should or we're angry with the poor person, but you know, they're poor. Why are you angry? <laughs> or you're angry at yourself because you're also poor. And why are you angry? But you know, it's, it seems kind of funny and stupid, but it's really, um, it's set up for this to allow you to have this encounter uh, with the Lord in so many different ways um, and all these different avenues. And that's, that's really a gift. I think that, that that mission allows uh, for individuals and for the community um, and even for the poor, that they bring us the light of Christ in, in so many ways. So, yeah. I, I think it might be helpful for for maybe non-Catholics or possibly non-Christians for you to just sort of define spiritual poverty, if you could, for people, because because you just you're kind of blowing my mind because I'm thinking, gosh, if I did friendship e- evangelization for 68 months and then viewed a whole bunch of what I'd done as a failure, I, gosh, I view you as a success. So. So, so what do you mean when you say spiritually poor or I sure. I think there's a spiritual poverty. Like we would offer the example. Sometimes at simple house. Like, um, like somebody might steal a car. Like sometimes our van would get stolen and they would steal the van, like not because they needed the van, but because like they just wanted to go joyriding. <laughs> or like, you know, there's a poverty there. Like they're stealing not because they need something, but which would be just if they needed it. But not that I'm saying people should steal stuff, but there's a different definition of justice, but, but not, um, you know, like someone's, someone's children are hungry and they have food, but they don't feed their kids. Like there's a poverty there. There's a spiritual poverty there that, they, why aren't they feeding their children, you know, if there's ability to do that. But there's also the, pov- the spiritual poverty of, of one's own, um, the poverty of one's own weakness and one's own brokenness. Um, that's also a poverty that we all experience to recognize our own woundedness um, is a great poverty that is something we ourselves can't, can't touch uh, fully, that we can address in, in various ways and sometimes maybe need to. But, um, but it's something really that it really can be touched also by by God. Um, that there's a there's a poverty there that's that's uh, that's uh, really a, a spiritual poverty. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think I understand. I, I think what you're saying is is that you know we humans we come up with grand plans, grand ambitions. Sometimes we work very hard 
Uh, on the outside, it might even look like we succeeded. Maybe we won the championship, but really we, we owe all of our successes to God. And we have to just sort of own our own failures. And we have to understand that the success came completely from God and that the failures came completely from us. Is, is that, is, am I getting close? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Sure. Okay. Okay. Um, you were there for almost six years and then you retired. But why retired? I don't know if it's retiring, Tim. I think think it's just, uh, it's, uh, um, I I always thought of it like, um, you need to step from one good thing to another good thing. There's not like a quitting something. I don't know that, I mean, we can, we can maybe fail at some of our projects and that's not, that's not a bad thing to happen, but I think it's, it's really a, a moving from one thing to another that I think uh, I had the opportunity to do. Um, so I still, I still do mission and ministry and, and, and with this example of Simple House, even particularly with the poor, like I know some of the people here in Paris that um, I, I know them by name and I say hi to them on the street, you know, in, in the various neighborhoods and yell across the street, hey, or, you know, <laughs> they're like, ah, you know, it's, it's very funny, yeah. And, but, um, but for me, it's not just this encounter, it's, it's also, there's always a mission. It's not just like a, you know, retiring. I don't think there's such thing as retiring. <laughs> well, I didn't know what you, word to use. When I, when I was trying to come up with that sentence, I was like, quit? That didn't seem right. Resign? Retire? Stop? No, halt? No. Okay. I, I just couldn't come up with a... a so, Moving to the next good thing, one well, good to another good. <laughs> I, I like that. I like. Well, I, I don't personally believe people should retire anyway. I think they should do what you just said, which is I think that they should stop doing what they're doing and move on to the next good thing. I, I think yeah. that's good advice. I think if you're, I don't know, I there was some weightlifter who was 97 years old, and you know there are <laughs> pictures of the guy like flexing his bicep, and look, his bicep looked pretty doggone good. And then it, it turned out that I think he was a personal trainer and he was running a fitness company all at the Whoa. same time. And I was like, yeah. wow, you know, he's making Jack LaLanne and Arnold Schwarzenegger look bad. You know, I, I was just proud of the guy. So I, I just was thinking, well, he's got meaning and purpose in his life and he's adding value to the world and to other people. And so I, I don't know. I just I, I guess, yeah, the, the whole concept of retiring, I, I like your concept much better. I just have yeah. to say so. I could see you being the 97-year-old lady who's uh, either doing missionary work or running a fitness company, one or the other. <laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's move on to Rediscover because that was next. Uh, wh- what is Rediscover? Rediscover, it's an outpatient psych rehab um, in Kansas City. And there's a couple different locations there. They're all throughout the city, honestly. Um, it's one of the many mental health facilities in, in Kansas City. Um, depending on what section of, of the city you live in, you might be referred to various outpatient facilities if you are needing some assistance. Um, and Rediscover, uh, yeah, it's for various demographics, um, services for various demographics. And the office I worked in was in, um, in a very poor neighborhood and primarily with the the poor and the severely mentally ill poor. So that was the the um, the program I worked for was the um, MSIM program. It was specifically targeting those individuals to help them, um, those that really couldn't function in society, um, to help them as best we could to be able to be um, 
living a more full life um, as best as we could and as best as they could. So that took a variety of different um, avenues, depending on who you're working with, but it was a joy. I was there for quite a while as well, maybe four and a half years, I think. Like that. Okay, about four and a half years. Um, can you tell us a story that just really illustrates what you're doing for Rediscover? Sure. Me, I think I had one earlier. Let's see. Um, um, one that comes to mind was hmm, this. There's quite a few, honestly. Um. I can share two maybe briefly. There's one, there was a woman who was, um, who was sent, it was in, enrolled in services with us. Uh, um, she, she, I shouldn't share her story for HIPAA reasons. Let's see, let's try another one. Um, That's okay. <laughs> there was another, used to live in, uh, I'm not legally, you know, tied to that, but for the sake of the individuals who are still in the community, I won't share anything that might give them away. Yeah, you fair enough. Them. Fair enough. So uh, there was another individual who um, who lived in a shed behind a little uh, house, or not even a house. It was like some utility. Some she knew somebody that worked someplace or whatever. So, anyways, I ended up helping her. She had some pretty severe mental health issues, but she ended up being in and out of the hospital a lot, um, particularly because she was not only experiencing mental health issues but was also a severe addict. Um, and it wasn't always the case that the people I worked with had addictions, but this individual did. So it was really helping her navigate um, both her relationships and situations, um, as well as helping her um, navigate being in and out of the hospital and, and even reconnecting with her family, um, which was really a gift. Um, another woman I know that I worked with, she was really very, very sweet. When I first met her, um, she she would do bizarre things like eat uh, potato starch and like weird stuff because her mind just wasn't well. She would, for various reasons, claim this did stuff to help her. And with time, I was able to, I think also because of my formation in Simple House and in being in the university, um, was able to really gain the trust of her and build some rapport and encourage her um, to take some injectable medication that could help her. And with this, it doesn't matter what she was taking, but with this medication, she ended up being able to function a lot better, um, as well as even host her son in her house for a visit. Um, she could navigate a schedule a little bit more. Um, she ended up wanting to exercise at our office once or twice a week, um, wanted to work on eating healthier, different things like that, that um, generally because I was on the intake team, I would see people when they were at their worst and not medicated or just coming out of prison or um, sent to us from a lot of different avenues. But a couple of them that I continue to work with long term were the ones that were really severe that the um, organization asked me to keep tabs on. So I really admired the progress that she had. But also, again, it was really because of this trust that we developed that she trusted me enough to offer her a suggestion of what could help her. And it really did. And um, even when I left uh, working at Rediscover, I offered her the, to take care of one of my one of my plants that I had at my office that I think actually it was someone gave me. And I said, "Will you take care of this for me? Just uh, I think you do a great job." And it was allowing her to to really share a bit of life. Obviously, you don't, you know you don't normally give people gifts and stuff, particularly at Rediscover. But it was a really a, a beautiful thing. 
Um, I mean, there's also some pretty wild examples I, I could share, like um, working with a lawyer to get somebody um, institutionalized and in the middle of the courtroom, you know, they're running out and running down the street and steal someone's car and they have to organize with the police to make sure they're not going to hurt anyone in the community or themselves or, you know, get them institutionalized and make sure their family understands that process. Um, there's a lot of really bizarre, bizarre stories I could share that it's just the challenge that occurs when people's minds aren't functioning um, properly. So I really enjoyed working with the ones with their, that were the most sick. Um, there was one guy who didn't shower for four months and when he did, he would shower with bleach. What? And, um, and again, it was because I had developed uh, his trust that I was able to say to him, Hey man, like <laughs> I'm not going to sit with you unless next time I see you, you take a shower. Like, you, you know, I like, you know, I haven't ever told you anything like to harm you. Right. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know. And he thought he was in a video game, just like bizarro stuff that his mind again, wasn't working well. And it was really because of this trust that developed that I was able to say, you know, do you want to try to take a shower and not with bleach? And do you want to try this medication that after, you know, working with him for probably a year, he finally said, okay, I'll try it. And that was after he was institutionalized in the hospital for quite a while. And it was because again, because of trust that he said, okay, I trust you. I'll now go with you to this appointment to get this medication. And um, for me, it was great to see the progress of people when they first came in to the program and then see when they were sent to work with other staff, how they did. Um, but there was also a couple that I worked with long-term that um, I was thankful to see their, their progress um, and how trust, allowing someone the opportunity to develop, in this, in this case, not friendship evangelization, but to some sense, a little bit of that, um, help them to be able to help themselves. And some would even say they, they knew I was a Christian and to pray for them. There's one guy that I helped at the end of his life um, who um, I really think it was Providence that I still was at Rediscover when I was. I was able to help him get out of a really bad situation where he would have died um, in a rocking chair, you know, and, and surrounded by bugs and just bad, bad, bad. And, and I was really able to say, okay, I think we need to do something different for you. And I was truly, again, Providence and really praying for the clients I worked with that I was able to get him into an organization that helped him and, and visit him and, and pray with him really right before he died. And for me, it was the really uh, providence to also connect him again with his family um, and to have the challenge of navigating some things with his family, but but also to uh, to pray with him and in his last moments when no one else maybe would. So for me, it was, again, the formation from before that I already knew this was the foundation in which to live, but also that recognizing the success in a sense that I had with these individuals, people were like, how did you do that? I didn't do anything, but just listen to love this person and also pray for them. <laughs> it was really a recognition. Like, they're like, I don't know how that works. Well, you know, I don't know either. <laughs> I just really like do the best I can. And like, I would say to them, let the Lord do the rest. And um, depending on who I was speaking with, I might share that. But uh, even a therapist one time who worked across the hall from me, he would say, Bianca, I'm meeting with this client. I've never spoken with them about this before, nor ever done this in my 20 years of practice. Like, please, please pray. <laughs> Yeah, no problem, Dave. I'm happy to do that. And, um, you know, we recognize like there is something beyond us to really love the poor and that we're, we're sick, uh, not necessarily because of their own doing. It was, um, it was beyond their, um, 
be on there doing that they were not well and to love them where they were at and just to see what God did with that. So that was a very long answer, maybe some scattered stories. I, I can't share too many specifics because of the, the HIPAA laws, but um, hopefully those are a little bit insightful. No, it's, it's amazing because, well, just uh, on a personal note regarding your personality, you just must be one of the most patient people that I've ever met in my life. <laughs> I, I just know a lot of people where where they would not be able to deal with a person like that at all. Or if they did deal with a person like that, they would want to tell them what to do and then not have to tell them twice. And, and here you would have to maybe hang with a person for 6, 12, 18 months before you could really maybe see some true impact and that patience that you have is just extraordinary. I just have to say. Oh, you can pray. I, I still have patience, Tim, because it depends <laughs> on the circumstance. <laughs> well, but, you know, some people on the flip side that I know who are patients are not go-getters. But, I mean, you're a go-getter with the double major and the title boxing and just the athleticism. You're a real go-getter and a patient person. That's that's weird. You're just weird, Bianca. I, just I, I am weird. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me. In a good way. In a good way. Um, do it's you, true. Do you feel, uh, I, I've done a little bit of work with the homeless and, and I, I, didn't, I, I didn't do enough to really make an assessment or I did it when I was very young, when I was 23. I worked in a homeless shelter for a, a whole summer one time. And I, I'm curious, like how many people in the situation that you helped maybe at Rediscover, would you say that maybe it's a mental illness that some people have that if they just got the medication they needed, then their life would just be so much better? Is that, what fraction of the population do you think that is? Um, as percentage wise, honestly, it's been quite a few years that I've looked at those numbers. So I, I don't want to miss tell you what, percentage okay but i do know that for certain individuals um medication can be of extreme help and in helping reduce their symptoms so that they can be more fully who they are um and there's also the, the danger of sometimes if you change medications that it can really impact somebody um and be a real detriment to their progress which i've also seen that happen to people um and it's been a really sad situation so it, it's really, um, there's, the, there's the, you know, the great gift that we have of science to help people. And I think when it's needed, it, it should be used appropriately for, for helping individuals in, in an ethical way. Um, but also, I think, uh, you know, particularly with, with outpatient psychiatric care, there's also an opting in of the individual um, that is up to them. And when they don't want to take medicine, when it's very obvious that they need medicine and it can't be required, um, there's a real challenge with that as well. And so there's, there's the need to navigate both of those things, both the independence of the individual, but also the recognition of the need for the assistance that's available through science to help and medication to help them. And again, like some quick examples, I mentioned that really it's through gaining the trust of the individual that you have only the best in mind for them that then they're able to say, okay, well, I, maybe I'll take this step. And even when they're not in their right mind, it's really, again, it's a grace that there, there's something that, that like, they like realize it's, it's like written in how we're created. I think by God as a human person, that when we recognize someone is 
cares for my best good that then we're able to respond to that and it's even in their you know their insanity in many cases they were able to to do that um there's a there's a challenge in that i think that one you know i think that i saw some people i work with they didn't know how to navigate that because i think they don't maybe have that experience so so anyways um yeah i i don't have a number for you tim but i have that quick example <laughs> no that's that's totally fine i think what i'm really picking up from your answer is something maybe more important than a number is it, you just have so much love in your heart for helping people who are down and out you know, for people who, um, one author, I guess, called it life at the bottom. You just have such a heart for these people that you are just willing to be as patient as it takes, uh, to do what it takes, to just think it through, to just feel it through. And that's just really amazing, Bianca. And I just want to thank you for that, just for what you've done. Well, thanks. Well, okay. So... You eventually did not work at Rediscover anymore. What made you move on to something better? Um, let's see. I, I needed to make a change, and um, I had the opportunity to go to, where was it? When I was at Rediscover, I went to Europe um, for a couple different things, and then there was a, another time that I, I would save up my vacation time and go for 30 days to Europe. <laughs> Um, and buy the cheap airlines that, you know, you get on seven planes to get there for 600 bucks or something insane. Um, because I didn't make any money. And really when, even when you work with the poor as a profession, you don't make any right. money. Right. 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 Money. You know, it's sometimes, you know, less than $2,000 a year or something ridiculous like that. But, but, um, so I, I really recognized I needed to make a change for various reasons. It was a step that I needed to make in my life. And I had the opportunity to go to um, Tertium Millennial. It's a seminar in Krakow in Poland. Um, as well as from there, I went to um, spend some time with the community of the Lamb uh, that I'm a lay member of. We have a monastery in Kansas that was very, um, I still am very much a part of, uh, and as well as other missions and ministries in Kansas City. But um, I went to their um monastery in france for i think it was maybe at that point a month and really just to pray and i left my dog at rediscover and i didn't have anything i was going back to as far as work and it was really a moment of okay lord i know you're showing me i need to take a step um i had gotten into university but had deferred it and um for various reasons and i just left uh, all these things and said all right uh if i got into the seminar i was going to saint pierre and I did that, and then I went back to Kansas City after those, I think it was a month and a half or so, and just started applying to different jobs, and I was offered another job at Rediscover with um, a coworker that had just become a director of another program, and he said, you'll have the freedom to do whatever you want, um, because I had worked with him uh, for the five, I think it was for the almost three and a half, four years specifically. And he was like, you know, I, I want to work with you. And I said, thank you, but I, I need to decline. Um, and uh, I really thought there's another direction. So I randomly got an email during my applying for probably like some crazy amount of jobs. I don't even remember, it was just insane. And so I'm sure you know the job market is the challenge of all that. And um, I got an email from this company called Flocknote 
And I thought, well, it's a Catholic company. I don't know much about it, but why not? They're just asking a couple questions for their interview process. I answered a couple questions, sent them my, I don't even know if they wanted a resume. Maybe I sent them a resume or something. And uh, it was a long interview process, like maybe a month or so later, I heard back. And then um, I ended up getting hired by them. And um, again, it was just purely Providence because before I'd even left to go to Europe, I had deleted a lot of uh, random emails from my inbox, uh, like junk emails. And I was like, how did I get this invitation to apply to this job? I deleted a lot of stuff. And um, so, uh, again, that was providential. And that's, that's now where I work is with Flocknote, um, a Catholic company uh, working in uh, communications and diocesan work with them uh, and tech and communication support. So um, that allows me a freedom to work remotely. Um, and to do many of the things that I'm interested in, but also to work with a really superior team of you know, small company, but some of the just most amazing individuals um, that want to build a more connected church and be on mission. And um, so, yeah, that was the next step. It was left and didn't know what I was doing and just said, all right, Lord, you got to do what you want to do. And that's one of the many things that I was really blessed with uh, was, was to have this work. And then from there, I have an invitation to come to Paris um, and again, to go to university and uh, to participate in mission uh, here in in Paris with Amincio, a charismatic community. Um, and I'm a part of a charismatic community since I was in high school, but also to, to learn in a new way from the one here by living in a community with young adults um, and doing street evangelization. Uh, but as well as also being being able to study and to continue to learn that I, I knew I wanted to do. Like after Rediscover, I said, I want to learn some new things and see what that will do to help me, not just career-wise, but also just, just to learn. I, you know, I worked in the Southern Avenue for a long time and try something else and see what happens. So that is, yeah, that's it in a nutshell again. That, that is three separate things. And that's just pretty fascinating. What did you say your degree is going to be in? Um, it's a, it's just a master's in international management um, with a focus on NGO mission-based work. It's, it's a, yeah, loosely that focus, but that's, that's what it is in the end. So are the, a business are, degree. Are the classes in English or French? They're in English. So when I applied for universities, I, I knew I wanted to, to study abroad. Um, and there were very few that I found that were English-speaking universities. Um, so I found this one quickly because I had a short time frame to apply. Um, and again, this is now probably three years ago or more that I had applied to, to study. And it was one of the first things that popped up. And it also, they offered me some, some ability to be here and whatnot financially and all that because I didn't work for a regular job. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the company you work for just sounds incredible. It sounds, I don't know, kind of cutting edge and small, but growing and that a lot of good things can happen with it. And uh, they probably just appreciate somebody who is really kind of willing to blaze their own path. I mean, that's really kind of the definition of entrepreneurialism in the first place. And I think that you're doing that and you have done that in a very different way. It's just now that it's going to have some dollars attached to it or maybe some euros, you know, so. It's still in dollars. It's still American. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. But, but obviously, you know, it's cool for you to live in France. Um, so we were kind of talking about this before we started. Uh, how good is your French? How good is my French? Well, um, I mean, it's, I personally don't think it's very good. I can understand some things. Uh, 
most, hopefully most things, um, or, you know, converse just kind of generally, um, if I'm, yeah, it depends on the circumstance, how, how bold I am. <laughs> okay. Uh, say, say something in French, would you please? Say something in French. Uh, I don't know. What I don't say. know. Like, hi, Bianca. How are you? Uh, 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 no, it's, it's evening. Oh, it's, uh, it's afternoon for you. So, bonsoir, Tim. Comment ça va? How are you? And you just say, uh, or you just say, uh, hi, Tim. Ça va? And like, that's kind of how you say, um, like in, in English, we'd say, how are you doing? Like, how's it going? Or like, ça va? Ça va? Or, well, you know, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's you know? not bad. That, that's pretty no, not bad. That's pretty cool. Um, was it disconcerting when you first went? Because I don't know, maybe did you have any French when you went over there? When I was uh, in elementary school, I studied French. I studied a little bit before coming here. I'm not very bold in practicing here, which certain people in the house will only speak to me in French. <laughs> I laugh, but it's good for me, and they remind me it's good for me. And I texted somebody back in French yesterday, and they corrected my French, which was great. And they're like, but bravo, Bianca, and it was very funny. And good for me, yeah. But, um... Yes, it just depends. Like we went on did street evangelization on the street this morning, and um, you know, I, I I'm a little bit more timid. I don't speak to people necessarily in French. The lady asked me a question. Was like, I can understand you, but you know, I don't speak very well. <laughs> like, oh, okay. And she turns back to the other girl I'm with, and you know, it's no problem. But God willing, you can pray that I get better at that and a bit more bold. But um, yeah. Well, good luck. Good luck with the French. Um, I, I just think that that's amazing. I, um, <laughs> if I live to be, I don't know, 200, I, I'm planning on learning French, you know, after I learn Spanish and Japanese, I think. Um, good. Where good. in Paris do you live? Oh, maybe you didn't hear me. Bad internet connection. Where in oh, Paris? Yes, Go ahead. Where in Paris do you live? Uh, I live in uh, it's just the uh, It's just um, I wish I said it in French. It's hard. It's just next to Montparnasse. It's uh, it's kind of like a main neighborhood here. Um, it's really in the center of Paris. A nice, really nice neighborhood. Um, we have a beautiful garden. A beautiful private garden is like one of the nicest ones in the city. <laughs> But that, I live in an old convent that's um, owned by the diocese, and they give Anuncio, the charismatic community I live with, permission to live here, uh, to be on mission. Um, I live in a, an apartment with six other girls, and below us there's uh, guys, and then below us there, there's our little chapel and a family with six kids. And then there's also the other side of the convent, uh, which is huge, um, where there's uh, this other ministry called APA, and they house formerly homeless people, and they have young adults and families that live with them, with uh, their women's households and their guys' households. Um, we're not we're separate from that organization and that Catholic ministry, but um, they live together in this big old convent here. Um, it was really a dream to live here for for the uh, confinement too. And in Paris, we were really confined; like you didn't leave your house <laughs> um, for, for a long time. So. Um, it was really a gift to be here and, and, and even at all to be here it's a gift from the church uh, to, to be here for mission 
Okay, very cool. Uh, keeping things positive, uh, maybe. Uh, what's great about Paris? What's great? Yeah. Uh, yeah, like why Paris? Like if you're going to live someplace, what's what's so great about Paris? What is great? I think uh, I think one thing that's great um, is that they they take time to slow down. And they really do that. And as an American, I don't do that well. And I've been called out about that. They're like, you're always was looking at the time I'm like well really because I have too many things I'm doing and they know that too but also um really like they take their time with people and with conversations particularly uh the French they'll really for a meal you know they have a two-hour lunch I'm like we have 30-minute lunches in the U.S. you know <laughs> maybe 30 minutes maybe and they were like are you kidding me you know and um or like now in August like all of the country is on holiday, like literally, like things just close, like, and they take a holiday for the month. Like you walk down the street, you're like, I'll be back the end of August. It's like, how do you ever make any money? <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. How do they ever make any money? But it's just a different pace. And there's, um, there's a challenge to that culturally. Um, but there's also a beauty to it where they want to enjoy life, um, and enjoy the beauty of life. And, um, the people that they are with and even in conversations like French people love to converse and just talk and talk and talk and like maybe not ever reach a conclusion but they still keep talking and it's like um, very different than the American culture where we talk with a quick intentional purpose and we're done at a certain amount of time like I had a meeting today uh, this afternoon our U.S. time this morning with New York and we had our meeting for 23 minutes, I think it was. And I was like, well, thanks, ladies, for like a really efficient meeting. <laughs> and we had five points. And, you know, I also said they know where I live. And I said, it's very different than the culture I live in. I'm very thankful for the, the quick productivity, you know, like our community meetings here at the house might take a long time because we have our dinner and then we have our sharing and then we have our meeting it's like you know 45 minutes when it could have been discussed in five <laughs> so uh, anyways but there's I, I joke about it I love it very much that there's a beauty in that and it reminds me of the need, need to slow down um and it reminds me also of the gift of the American culture and in, in other ways too so I think there's there's a balance that can be found I think in both that can be uh, really really good yeah, for sure. I'd, I'd have cultural whiplash if I had your job and if I were living where you live. I, I just, my, my head would be spinning. Yeah, sometimes I, I feel that way a little bit. Like, uh, um, yeah, if you turn around and start talking to somebody. Uh, one time I had a meeting and I turned around and Ellen was asking me a question and she asked me in French and was like, I'm sorry, let me take a moment to like process what you're trying to ask me. <laughs> and because uh, because it's not my first language and I'm still learning. So it's just a funny uh, difference. And, but I enjoy it. I'm, it's really providential and really gifts the whole thing. So it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How are the French people? Uh, how are the French people? They're very welcoming. I, I really, I really uh, love them. I really do. I, um, I know French people, particularly from the community of the Lamb, initially. Um, before that, I didn't know many French people. So that's maybe a first special initial encounter is because they're, they're religious. Um, but uh, yeah, I think French people in general, I think they might joke that it depends on which French person you're speaking to. Like if you're talking to um, a Parisian, it's a 
different encounter than if you're talking to somebody from southern France. But, but really, they're very welcoming and wanting to help uh, and uh, share life and culture. And they love their culture, love their history, love their language. If you, they can go into just like, you know, a 45 minute conversation about like how you like the how a word develops and like, Oh, it's just it's really very different than anything else I've ever experienced. See, see, that's what I've heard, and I'd like to ask you about that. Um, can an American become a French citizen? And the reason I'm asking is, is because I've heard that. Well, maybe technically you can, but you really can't. That that France is a culture; it's a strong culture. Um, I guess the opposite. America is a idea. You know, if you like the United States Constitution and if you believe in freedom and democracy, pretty much anybody can become an American. But but to be French, it's a culture and a culture is like a family and it's just not easy necessarily to join. That's what I've heard. Is that true? Is that not true? Um, that's a really good question, Tim. I know for me, like, I'm also Italian. My dad is from Italy, so I have uh, the gift of being European. So some of that I have an experience with from my family life. Um, it's not French. I have some French experience from being uh, part of the community of the lamb. But yeah, even being here, um, you know, I'm, I'm American for sure in some, in some of the ways I think and how I encounter people and even how you converse with people. Uh, there's another guy at the house here that is also American, um, and he's lived in France for 10 years. And he even says to me sometimes, well, Bianca, it's this and this and this way because of how they say this, or he had to learn those things um, initially when he first arrived or after 10 years and is still learning them. And I'm thankful he shares many of those points with me because it helps me to understand my way of processing or explaining something is very different than the French way of processing or explaining something or comprehending something. So there definitely can be a, what we joke about, like lost in translation that really can and sometimes does happen. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, as far as being French, I think um, you can definitely adopt some things of a culture and the people that you're surrounded by, uh, for sure. For me, it's all still in many ways very new. Um, but seeing my friend also, I joke that like he's sometimes more French than he is American, <laughs> and uh, which is not bad. Um, but even then, sometimes we'll still complain about this way certain things are done. You know, we don't have a dryer. Yeah, we don't have a dryer, you know? <laughs> what? People in France don't have dryers? Well, here they don't. Or like, we don't have screens on our windows, like, you know. Well, is not... that because you're living in intentional poverty, or is it that nobody in France uh, has a dryer or a screen on their window? Um, no, I, I'm joking, like, because I'm sitting in front of this very large window with the bugs hitting my light above me, but, um, but really it's, uh, I, I'm joking about just some of the cultural differences that, like, there's some things that um, maybe a, in France they wouldn't see as being a difficulty, but in the U.S. to be like, we're taking care of that right away, like, for example, the electricity here, like, would be on the fritz for, like, three months, like that would have been taken care of right away. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and in, in the U.S. and here it was like you know three months in. I'm like working on my computer. I'm like, sorry guys, my screen's being black. I'm like, I'm still here, like typing in the dark. You know, it's like <laughs> <laughs> that would have been taken care of like you know months before. And then finally, by the grace of God, it got like fixed and communicated with the right people. But 
there wasn't a rush on that, you know, and it's just like culturally, it's just a different way of, of managing things and dealing with things that is just culturally different. And you can't blame people that that's how they function. It's, it's how their culture is, um, or how the situation we're in is, uh, warrants responses. And so anyways, those are funny examples. Um, but you know, they're, I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's very fascinating. Um, is there a person over there that you think you are always going to remember? Um, I, I think everybody here, really. I, I'm very thankful for each of them that they really blessed me in many different ways. Like, I arrived here and I wanted to come here particularly because I met the people in this house and thought these are really stellar individuals that I can learn from. Um, on mission and uh, even from Kansas City like Father Mattingly and a couple of other guys came Mark Sappington and some others came to visit me here because I thought when I first arrived there's something about this place and this mission that I think could be a blessing in Kansas City for young adults and um, could be replicated in some ways both with the mission and the ministry and the formation of the house and all of that but um, the people, I think, are, are what make the place very beautiful. And from each one, I've, I've really learned many things. And they've helped me to learn many things about myself and are patient with me in the whole process of being in a different culture. But even when I arrived, I never thought, oh, I'd be invited to, you know, three weddings in, in less than a year. I'm like, okay, the end of the month, we have Foucault's wedding. Great. Like, I never thought I'd go to three French weddings. It's like, uh, who am I to be invited to those things? And I'll really remember the gift of people's friendship. Um, and really they are, they're just want to genuinely, uh, love each other and, and love me where I'm at. And I'll definitely remember, remember that for sure. And, and hope that, that the people here are lifelong friends because we pray together. We you know we have a holy hour every morning. We're on a mission together. We have life together. Um, yeah, it's all good, good things. Awesome. Awesome. Um, is there something about Paris that maybe I should have asked but didn't ask or maybe is there something about Paris that just an outsider would never guess um oh yeah some things that are funny like we talked about earlier like there's a strike like a grab like there was a strike and the metro and they they'd wanted to have different changes in like um that's just security retirements, all of this. So they just went on strike and like, then the Metro just like, just doesn't run. You know, it's like, we wouldn't, that would never happen in the U S like that would never, like you might have a strike for half a day, but then you go back to work. <laughs> it's like, you know, it was like for like, gosh, like a month or two months. I don't even know. Some crazy amount of like people were walking to the university for their final exams. Like, it's just like just crazy you know things like that are um are here in paris that don't exist uh in other places like you expect, <laughs> and it's normal it, it's normal for them yeah you, you expect that? you expect for something to happen like you expect to get on the subway or i don't know maybe for the yeah. restaurant to be open but then all the restaurant workers are on strike and it's it's closed yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's only fun. I'm sure I could think of many other funny things like that, but the strike is the first one that comes to mind. Um, there's other just bizarre things as well. It, I don't know, or just, again, culturally just different. Okay, wow. Um, just a few questions as your life as a volunteer. So when you're not working, what do you do for fun? Um, well, right now I'm studying and trying to live life a little bit with people here. 
here. Hopefully I can do that a little bit better with the changes in some of my work schedule. I, I work now currently at night. So um, that's a difference also what I'm free to be able to do. Um, for fun, well, last weekend I went to Grenoble, or Grenoble uh, to visit a friend and to go hiking in the Alps. We ended up in this beautiful lake. It was my first time go swimming in a lake in the middle of the Alps, which was really a cool gift. I don't do that often, but um, I'm very thankful for fun opportunities like that to just meet new people and share life with friends. And uh, we, we go on mission here to do street evangelization, so I do that as well. Um, I know you mentioned title boxing. I don't do boxing anymore. I do the Tracy Anderson method, which is more like plyometrics, isometric training kind of mix a little bit. Um, it's not that particularly. She would probably be upset if I said that, but um, it's a really great workout. So I like to do that uh, as well. Um, read a little bit when it's not university stuff, just be with people, learn how to make some new food and have fun with different friends and see the city and different parts of the city that I haven't seen. And yeah, okay. stuff like that. Stepping back and just looking at kind of the big picture of your whole life, what do you think ultimately drew you to this life of volunteering? Even though right now you're, you're in business school, but you spent a good 10 years or 11, you know, primarily as a volunteer. What do you think drew that you drew you to that originally? Um, I, that's a really good question, Tim. I think for me, I really, when I was in high school, we had some really difficult moments in my, my life and with, with my family life and, um, it was not an easy, easy time. And I really encountered the love of the Lord, both in time of the personal prayer, but also in, um, the example and the love that I received from the people at my parish and young adult or in that kid, that time, uh, uh, high school, you know, youth group community. And I don't know, it was, I wanted to study theology and, um, in university. And my mom said, uh, you know, we can't just do that. So I, okay, I'll study psychology as well. No problem. <laughs> and, um, but for me, it was really this moment of really, uh, people loving me that I don't know that it was maybe like that in, push me to a life of volunteering. I don't know that it's like, it was necessarily, I choose to do volunteering. It was more, I want to just go where the Lord has for me. And like we were speaking of earlier, what's the next best thing and what's the next step that the Lord provides. Um, and in my, even looking back, even just in this brief reflection in all the moments, it's really like the next step was provided by God's providence and whether I, fully recognized it then or even can fully even comprehend it now it was really always like uh, an offer uh, to take a step like okay well I was offered to go in the projects and minister to the poor by this uh, student minister who was the friend of mine and said come with me okay great no problem and someone said hey will you babysit this the poor mom's babies so I can bring her to Sunday mass yeah okay no problem uh, then I encounter the poor in a new way. And I, you know, I came from very different circumstances and, you know, it opened my eyes to see something new. And, um, and I thought, but, but really, I really love the Lord and want to, you know, serve him whatever way he has. And it was more like really going along step by step with whatever God provided for me in the next step. And, 
And like we spoke about earlier, it was saying yes to some things and no to others. Like saying, yes, I'm going to do this mission work. And if they thought just for a brief amount of time and saying no to this job offer, and you know, the next step again, saying yes to this and no to that. And, but also I think um, there were moments where like, it wasn't just, okay, here's the next thing. It was more like, I don't know what I'm doing. All right. I might internally be freaking out or even expressing to certain people. Mm. I don't know what I'm doing, but um, it was, uh, I think it's good to say out loud that really like that God was, was, and has always been faithful to me in and through all of that in making clear, even with time and with like letting go of what I think needs to be the next thing and that he provides the next best step for me. If I just am like, let go of my own preconceived notion of what I think that should be. Like, I didn't think I'd be in Paris living in this convent. And when I initially thought I'd be coming here, like this didn't even exist. Like these people didn't live here. You know, it's like, um, or the person that even introduced me to this wasn't in a place to even have lived here himself. And so, um, it's all just very providential. Like the next steps of to volunteer to serve. I think it's really when we're giving to others and stepping away from just this self focus, it's from that, that I think like we can then be open to just receive more of what God wants to give us. Like we have then like a receptivity, like even just in this motion, it's like, I want to do all this, but no, if it's just like you give, like we have this funny example, I think that some people also do of like, no, here you go. Then like we can then receive whatever is before us, um, whether that's like meeting the person before us or the next situation to come or whatever. And I say it out loud to also remind myself <laughs> that it's true <laughs> in my life and, you know, in each moment. So to volunteer is just, uh, I think it's, maybe it's, it's the heart of the gospel, you know, to give oneself uh, to others. I think it's, um, and, and like in the community of the land, we have that as the model of the community. A wounded, I will never cease to love. It's the heart of the gospel that the Lord gives of himself freely given uh, to the other so that um, the, the greatest of love comes forth from that. And I don't know, it's not an intentional, okay, at each moment I'm thinking specifically of this, but I think when we, we strive to be a gift to the other, it's it's from that that we, we both receive um, uh, and also can, yeah, receive a greater, greater things than we ever imagined. So, yeah. voila, as I say. <laughs> you, you said so many things that, that I think would be foreign to people that are, that are kind of foreign to me that it's, it's almost impossible for me to sum them up. But I, I just really am impressed with how, your attention was always focused the entire time. You were always kind of asking God, how do I give? How do I give? And then you mentioned moments of internal panic, sometimes like not knowing if I'm I'm doing the right thing or moving in the right direction. But then kind of reflecting on these last 11, 12 years, I'm really hearing that you felt like you were in the right place the entire time. So it's I don't know, it, it kind of reminds me of an author writing a book who doesn't necessarily know where it's going to go, but then when it's finished, it winds up being really good, just a really good book. And, uh, you know, I, I guess going back to that earlier point that God is responsible for all of our successes, uh, maybe that's just why things have just turned out so beautifully and you've learned so much and, and you're just so active and 
and always discerning what to do next, but but not having these preconceived notions that it it absolutely has to be A, B, or C. I, I just think that the balancing act in that you're doing is just amazing. Oh, thanks. So, uh, I, I hope I I got your point from from what you said. No, Did okay, I? Well, it was a bit jumbled. I think in all my responses, I'm kind of just reflecting as we're discussing. A no, bit. it's I, man. I just I think it's worth me listening to it multiple times just to figure it all out. Um, I thought it was great. Um, what do you think has been the best part of a life as a volunteer? And if you want, what, what has also been the worst part? Um, the best part of a life as a volunteer. I think, I, I don't know. It's kind of a bit funny to say life as a volunteer. I think it's like what we just talked about. There's a bit of a mystery in the whole thing of, of, of we're all meant to, I think not in a sense, just volunteers. So we're, we're doing something and feel good about it. I think if we're living freely, we're, we're able to be our most selves and we're given to another person out of service to another, whether that's even in, you know, family life or work or mission and ministry or volunteer work in a secular organization. They're all ways that we can, um, have like great things that are available to us. Um, the best part, I, I think we can just, excuse me for the bugs. We, we can just always be surprised. I think by what, what comes our way and the experiences that come our way when again, we're, we're given in service to other people. Um, and not necessarily in a calculated way. I think, um, again, it's not meant to be like a checking off of the box, but, but really just a freely giving that that brings us something unexpected. Okay. What is the worst part? Well, the worst part, I'd say, like we talked about with our uh, earlier of our uh, needing to address one's own failures mm. and woundedness or um, desire to want to succeed and seeing that maybe that's not possible in the way we expected. Um, I don't know that that's even the worst part. I think humanly speaking, we might think it is, but even then it's something that can be transformed when we recognize like there's a good that can come out of that or we see okay, well, it's not about me doing something or me helping this person. It's about, um, you know, something beyond that. Uh, it's not, again, self-focused, but when we let go of the, the outcome, like there's a, a good that comes out of it. Okay, um, fair enough. Um, in life, who are your heroes and heroines? Hmm. Good question. Um, that's a very good question. I, huh. I don't know why. I think maybe I received an email today about um, this guy. I don't think of this person very often, but there's this blessed in the church, Pierre Giorgio Frasati. Oh, yeah. Uh, you may know him. He's, I do. He's Italian, which is why I also love him, <laughs> um, because I'm Italian. But... Um, I think I got an email today about maybe it was his sister's like 118th birthday and she had lived to 103 or something like that. I don't remember all the details, but, um, anyways, he lived a life really, we're talking about serving others. He's lived a life that was really given to the other. And in many ways I consider him a good friend. So, you know, he's, he's dead, but he's 
he's dead, uh, you know, humanly speaking, but he's a saint who's with the Lord in heaven. But I consider him a friend because he teaches me something and also he prays for me, I'm sure. Um, and I think I consider him, I don't know, if a, a hero is just a funny word to put on this individual, but I think I consider him a, a friend, a hero. I mean, he is also someone who's a friend who shares with us uh, a greater good, both for us and for others. And, and through his witness of his life that I'm sure you know about, and I hope many people can look him up. He really lived uh, for the others and loved his family and stepped beyond the wealth that he was offered to love the people before him and particularly to love the poor. Um, and we saw that in the witness of his life. And, and then he also had a life of great suffering when he wasn't understood by his own family, uh, by even his friends, um, and, uh, and died alone, actually. Um, and, but that the Lord in his faithfulness to him uses his life as an example for us to follow. Um, not that God wants us to be alone, but again, like we're speaking of, he brings greater, greater goods out of great sadness and suffering. Um, and that Pierre Giorgio loved throughout all of that. Um, I consider him really a hero in a sense, but more, more a friend. He's a good character for people to look up, a good person, because, well, he's just unique because, okay, so I, I think he was in his 20s in the 1920s, and he rode a motorcycle, and a lot of women, I think, would have considered him to be a good-looking guy, and he was into mountain climbing, and, uh, you know, he led demonstrations, I believe, against Mussolini. Uh, he was just a very active, energetic person, and a lot of his friends would say, hey, let's go out to the pool halls. And so he would go out to the pool halls with them and uh, then bet them over games of pool that if I can beat you, then you would have to come to church with me. And uh, he would always beat them. I guess he was a pool shark. And so then they would be forced to go to church with him. Uh, he's just a character. And then, then like you said, I mean, he uh, his parents, I think, were filthy rich. I think they owned a chain of newspapers in, in Italy. And so he... I, if I have that right, I think they just had a ton of money, but they were very hostile toward any form of organized religion. So he was pretty much about the only person in his family, except for maybe a grandmother, who was really into religion. And so, I mean, he had to kind of go against the best wishes of his parents and everybody else in his family in order to blaze his own path. And so I, so I guess he's a, he's a unicorn, basically. You know, in a family of mules, he's a unicorn. Yeah. So he's kind of an incredible, incredible person. Well, let me ask you a hypothetical question, Bianca. If somebody okay. gave you, like, I, I don't know, like a super rich person, Elon Musk, gave you $10 million after taxes, what would you do with <laughs> all the money? <laughs> the after taxes part is a good kicker. <laughs> Well, some of these countries are going to take half of it in taxes. So, I know. That's, not, that's why you clarified that. <laughs> yeah, well, because otherwise, you know, 10 million bucks. I mean, if it's in Zimbabwe, I mean, that'll buy a soda because they had hyperinflation. So I, so I just yeah. have to say $10 million after taxes or, I don't know, you could have 10 million euros after taxes. You choose. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry about the conversion rate. Yeah. Um, I get slammed on that. I, um, what would I do with that? 
I, I think there's there's some individuals that I know are worthy of investing in some projects that would bring them really a lot of life that are, are um, really talented. One, a really talented designer that I know could uh, benefit from having some help, financial help to take next steps. So investing in people, not just only that have the potential for progress, but also um, have given their life to others and, and, and also just need someone to help them and love them. I think this really would be beneficial. Uh, obviously, the community of the Lamb, they're my family in many ways. I love them very much. You could help them. Um, they live off of Providence. Uh, there's another friend who he does, um, he runs an NGO, um, here in, he lives in France, but he runs an NGO in Africa, caring for, um, the children that are, that are imprisoned in certain countries in Africa and uh, really unjustly. And, and he helps to form them and to care for them and, um, and to love them. And like we were talking about earlier, he is Catholic. I know his, his brother is a little brother of the lamb. And, um, he, he, I think what his brother told me a story once of how one time, uh, David, um, had some interview or something. They asked the little child, well, what do you like about David and, and his wife, Ellen and what they're doing in this situation? He said, well, but, but they really just love me. You know, this poor child who was imprisoned for something probably really in what we might think is just absurd. Um, again, it was like this power of loving the other and it was, and they do more social, obvious social service work. But even in the midst of that, the individual receiving knows that they're loved. And, um, and that is what transforms, not just the individual, but from that experience, God willing will also transform their life and their future and their culture and their community. And so I think investing in, and their work, um, uh, Grand Dignement is the name of the organization, I believe, would be a really cool thing to invest in. Well, and they're you, very simple, beautiful people as well. They, they give everything, literally everything away. It's crazy. That's incredible. Well, I have two questions that, that come from what you just said. I think my first one is, do you take, I don't know, maybe a half a million dollars and just put it in a retirement fund for yourself for when you are 97 and running your fitness company? My fitness company. You mean like uh, Dave Ramsey style? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Do you do you uh, salt away like no, I, I don't know? I try my best to institute Dave Ramsey style. I don't always succeed in it, but you know, I am happy to report I have almost zero debt and um, like you know, like point one away from that. But um, but I, yeah, I don't know. I think there's a point of being prudent, um, and there's there's a point in scripture that says to give to others, but not in a way that you're then, you know, at a detriment. Um, and I forget that the scripture on station should have that by heart and I don't use it as an excuse not to give, but I think, um, there's also moments in my life. I was actually thinking about this recently, like one time a priest in high school, he said something to form us as, you know, teens. He said, you know, I want to challenge you to tithe. Um, he said 10% and he said, you know, and, if you're disappointed, uh, come back and tell me. And I never had to go back and tell him I was disappointed because the Lord always provided. And even in moments where I, you know, I didn't have a job 
at the university. I was doing other things. I really had, I was living very frugally, went to a very good school. And, you know, anyways, the details don't matter, but I remembered what he said. And it's a good reminder again for me now to say it again is, is that when we give, like God always provides, um, doesn't mean we, we shouldn't be prudent and like putting money aside and all that. Uh, but both, both are true. There is something else that you said that I, that I really want to tie into these next two questions is I felt like you said a little throwaway sentence that was at the heart of how you've managed to be effective with people, how, in other words, really make a difference in people's lives. And I think you said words to the effect of when the other person really understands that I love them. You know, when people feel loved, then they will make changes in their lives. Mm-hmm. And and is that correct? Is that what I heard? Yeah, I think that's that's a true. That's true for sure. I, I'm, you know, we can't correct somebody or help somebody uh, if it's not done lovingly. Like truth without love, it just is like a dagger in the heart. You know, it doesn't bring about anything but somebody bleeding out. Right. <laughs> Um, it's a funny example, but it's true. And, um, and I haven't always, you know, done that well, but I've also seen the example of people that do do it well. And by the grace of God, I hope it's been possible in my own life to to love other people well, but, and even in my own experience, like when people have offered me a suggestion to do something different or to make a change in my life or whatever, I know and trust them because I know that they, they love me uh, for me and not because of what I'm doing for them or you know, whatever the situation might be. So, um, yeah, when we, when we really start to love somebody, um, I think it's then that, that they're willing to make some change and, um, and not that we're love forces people to make a change. It might even just be accepting them where they're at. And that's, and that's also not a bad thing. Um, as part of loving people as well. It's not, not to, to, to <laughs> Wait, missing. Uh, not to do things that are forceful. Maybe speaking a little bit loud later. Okay. Um, well, then here are two questions for you. What do you think religious volunteers can learn from social workers? And what do you think social workers can learn from religious volunteers? Um, I, I think that there is volunteer work uh, was initially, I think, a heart of what social work was initially done by religious organizations. I think when it's institutionalized, there's something that's lost, um, which is, I think, like what we're talking about um, is the heart of loving the other, that when that isn't done, you lose something in the fullness of how you can care for the individual. Um, And that's, I think, is only possible in its fullness when it's done through a religious organization that doesn't have any other preconceived needs to fulfill like checking off the medicaid box or getting a grant some organizations that are religious do need that it's not bad to have that need but i think there's something lost because you lose the focus of loving the other um that can be a challenge and yeah in social work too there's a good that that comes of of that and the structure and, and learning how to help individuals through different social services and things that are available um, but again, there's the limit to that, um, that I think when you, when you make something institutionalized, um, it can become just an institution, um, instead of something 
um, something else. So I've seen that be a challenge in some of the places that I've worked. Um, yeah, that uh, it just makes it difficult. Where it just becomes transactional. Yeah, everything's transactional. Even helping an individual is just transactional. Okay, this is my 7 a.m. appointment and my, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 appointment. That I saw a difference in, even in some of my other work of that wasn't specifically religious focused and how individuals that were um, religious uh, recognized that they were caring for somebody a bit differently than those that weren't, or even some that maybe you know, wouldn't necessarily have said that they were religious. Um, there's one individual, some nurse that was really, she just cared so beautifully for people. And um, even moving beyond her own, um, you know, uh, requirements of her role to care well for people. And it was, again, it wasn't just because it wasn't because she was religious. I don't know that she would have necessarily claimed that. But it was because she, like this foundation of the human person, she really loved these individuals. And she might not necessarily say that, but there was a care really for them of it as an individual. Um, and when you're looking at social services, they speak of it in different ways. But from like the Christian angle, you would say, oh, this is the love of the other. And a secular angle, you might say, well, I really want to have their best good in mind and, you know, help them as best I can. But there's something foundational, I think, of how we're created in which there's uh, something that pours out forth from the other that in our understanding of its fullness is really a love that's greater than our own producing. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, flipping the question around, is there something that religious helpers can learn from social workers? Um, sure. I think that maybe, like we're talking about this, this patients, there's many, many individuals that um, I worked with in the social service realm that were really patient and really, really were the most patient with some people and, and they had a real heart for individuals and wanted their best good and would run around in circles for them. And I'm not for doing fire trails for people, but they really, uh, yeah, they really wanted the greatest good and were willing to utilize every resource possible to help them. And I think that was a really beautiful witness. And also uh, they were able to get really creative, many of them, because a lot of social services are limited and they would find the other ones that could really help the person and get really creative to make the best uh, possible outcome available to people that were in need. Oh, interesting. So if your hands are tied by a bureaucracy, they'll figure out a way to use their feet or to use their, their tongue or something. You know, they'll, sure. they'll, they'll figure out a way around the system to really truly help people. It'll make it creative. That's good. I like that. Um, I guess my last question, if, if, um, if it's okay, is this is actually kind of my favorite question to ask people. If you were 100 years old, now, so we're looking far ahead and you are surrounded by family and somebody asks, what made your life beautiful and satisfying, Bianca? What would you say in response at age 100? Who knows if I'll live to 100, <laughs> Tim. <laughs> we'll see what that looks like. It could be tomorrow. <laughs> um, but, um, anyways, I think... Uh, hmm. 
Well, you're eating all that healthy French food and, I don't know, smoking maybe those French cigarettes. I don't, I don't smoke. No, I don't, don't smoke. I don't smoke. I don't eat dairy. eat very, very rarely eat gluten. Um, I, I would say at 100, I, I don't know. This, this comes to mind of, is it St. John of the Cross? It says, like, in the end, you will be judged by how you have loved and like this keeps coming up, I think, in our conversation, and, and maybe maybe rightfully so that um, that the, the foundation is to love, and and that looks different in various circumstances. But um, yeah, that should be I think that should be the foundation of of everything. That you know, it also says like in the scripture. I'm just thinking again right now that there's no fear in love. Like we're most free when we can really love and um and not just love like we talked about in this giving to the other and pouring out of ourselves, but also even to love ourselves. and um and for me that's always a growing and learning experience that i strive for and that people help me in um is to learn how to love myself and my own woundedness and brokenness and like with the community of the lamb it's the motto of the community wounded, I will never cease to love. Um, that, uh, yeah, this is the heart of the gospel. It's the the heart of the church. It's the life of Christ, but also is to be the life of each one of us to, for the other, but also for oneself. I think it's it's both. And it's only possible really by grace. I think, yeah, that's that. Maybe that's that's it. It's the foundation. This, and the end, we were judged by how we have loved. That's really, really awesome. Um, there's freedom in love, and there's no fear in love. That was just beautiful and well said. Thank you, Bianca. This was absolutely wonderful, and I, I just really appreciate it. Thank you, Tim. It's a joy to talk to you. It's a good reflection for me and helpful for me, too, moving forward with many things. So I'm very thankful for the opportunity to, to share with you, and hopefully you will bless somebody and wherever they're at in life to pray for each other. <laughs> That's the foundation too, I guess. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Tim. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seemingly Ordinary. The biggest favor you could do for me would be for you to share this episode with friends. The next episode will be on next Tuesday.